I'm Tass Mellis of The Starters. This is Ben Golver with the Open Floor Podcast. Hi, I'm Kristen Ludlow from NBA Inside Stuff. I'm OJ Nanobi of the Toronto Raptors. Hey, I'm Elena Donon, and welcome to the Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Double Clutch Podcast. I'm Mike Miller and I've got a special episode for you today. Uh, current NBA analyst for ESPN, former vice president of strategic research for the Spurs, former lead analyst for Team USA and former analyst for the Great Grantland, it's Kirk Goldsbury. Uh, he's recently authored his first book. It's fantastic. I had it on pre-order in December. I love it. It's called Sprawl Ball, a visual tour of the new era of the NBA. You can find it on Amazon.com or .co.uk, whichever one you fancy going to. Um, if you want to follow Kirk on Twitter or Instagram, he is at Kirk Goldsbury. Um, make sure you're following Double Clutch on whatever whatever social media platform you use. We are at Double Clutch UK. Okay, without further ado... Here's Kirk. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us. What was the impetus behind Sprawl Ball? Well, I think the impetus is just to, to try to capture the, the, the most drastic metamorphosis in basketball history. And, you know, for those of us who have been following the league for um, a few decades, like we have watched a game completely transform. Um, so the impetus was try to try to really do a good job capturing that um, through the lens of analytics and visualization, um, but also through the lens of some of the most important individual players that have both been affected by that and driven those transformations. Um, so it was it was really just the the motivation was to to try to capture the the craziness of of, of this transformation. So was there was there a particular sort of lightning moment where you you sort of said, "Hold on, what's happening here?" Or was it just a case of pouring over, you know, years and years worth of, of spatial uh, data that you've obviously had to go through <laughs> to create all this? Well, no, there was no like special moment. I don't think you know. Uh, I I would wager that I have spent more time staring at shooting data uh, in the last ten years than anybody on the planet, and I just you know, started to look at players' evolutions and the league's evolution and the numbers and the locations. And I think it was just sort of a byproduct of me, you know, staring at this stuff for so long um, that I was like, wait a minute, why aren't people talking about this more? Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know if that was a single moment or, or anything, but, you know, just it's just been perpetual. And, and just when you expect the trends to stabilize or, or slow down at least, uh, they uptick again and they they rise. And so it was just time to tell that story. I thought it, there was an opportunity to really start a conversation about about the league, the league in flux, where it is, where it's going, and what do we want it to be. And I think that's the most fascinating part, to be honest. Yeah, no, I agree. I, mean, I, I as uh, as I might have told you in in our messages beforehand, I, I pre-ordered Sprawl Ball in in December, and it's been possibly the thing I've most anticipated this season, which I'm not sure whether it says a lot for the, you know, I know you touch on the aesthetics of the game in the book, but um, it, it's, 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 it, I, I love it. I've already sort of buried my head in the last three days deep into it, but you're, you're sort of from a geography and a cartography background before you became, well, before you started doing things for Grantland, how did you, you know, at what point did you, did you think that mapping out shots would, 
you know, how, how, did, how did you sort of go from A to B, geography to hoops? Well, it actually starts way before I became sort of professor of map making and cartography. <clears throat> Even as a young basketball player, I, I was sort of fascinated by my own abilities and inabilities across the, the court space and the sort of uh, idiosyncrasies in my own shooting ability from point A to point B to point C to point D. Um, and as I started to watch games closer and closer, I noticed that NBA players had similar um, favorite spots and weak spots in some cases. Uh, and, you know, the project always stuck in my head. It was always sort of my, my, my crazy idea I'd talk to my basketball friends about. is like, why can't we map these, these shot, the shot data sets like we map other things? And, you know, around the time 2010 or 11, I finally got some of these data sets. You know, for a long time, the league didn't collect the right kind of data to facilitate that. Um, but around 20 years ago, they started doing it. Um, and 10 years ago, I finally got my hands on some. And it took a while, but I, then I became obsessed with, like, what is the best way to map Dirk Nowitzki or Tim Duncan or Steve Nash's shots at the time? How can I use my map-making expertise to build a, 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 a a kind of visualization that it can expose these sort of spatial fingerprints of our favorite players and, and, and show these incredible diverse shot selection patterns and shot ability patterns. And that's when I really got into it in 2012 with a paper at the Sloan conference um, that changed my entire career around. Um, and then I became the shot chart guy for a few years on ESPN and so forth. But yeah, it really started with, with, with my, my obsession of my own game and then uh, my expertise as a map maker. So you're effectively the, 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 the pioneer of mapping in, uh, in, in basketball. It's really sort of remarkable to see these, these I don't even know how to describe them. I, I've, I've, I've had the conversation and I've shown many pictures uh, to, to my other half. And I describe it as art because the color, just the colors and the shapes and the way it all flows. That these these maps they look they look fantastic. Based on the era that you grew up watching the NBA, I'm guessing we're pretty similar in age. So we're now on the outer edge of the NBA's key demographic. So I think I can say this without causing any offense. But were there any times when you felt that your perspective, because you talk a lot about the aesthetics of how the game looks now, might be clouded by a, a sort of nostalgic um, emotion tied to the era where for, uh, for me, certainly, basketball was was just so close to my heart. Um, so it may, maybe my judgment would be clouded. Was there any sort of feeling of trepidation there for you? Yeah, I, I wanted. To, that's a great question. I didn't want to come across as like the middle aged guy pining for the old days. You know, um, <clears throat> I think that analytics has an opportunity not to go backwards and not to, to force like the old Heat Knicks aesthetic to come back, and or even the Jordan aesthetic. However. Um, I really think basketball has always evolved with time. Um, and sometimes those evolutions have been very organic and natural. Other times they have been um, man-made. And I would argue they've been man-made more than they've been organic. Uh, rule changes, playing surface changes have been intentional. Uh, they've been deliberate attempts to uh, encourage or discourage certain types of gameplay. And I think one of the cool things that, that was undiscussed as it relates to the analytics era of the NBA is that we now have a very incredible opportunity to try to optimize the aesthetic or optimize parts of the game that we want to see more of um, with data and computation. Because to date, uh, analytics has generally been framed as something that teams use to beat other teams. 
Uh, and I think that's an incomplete frame. I think uh, we have an opportunity at the league office to, to sort of shape the game, monitor the game, um, adjust the lines on the court or the rules to try to encourage the game. And we can do this empirically in ways that, that, that Naismith could have obviously never done. And even David Stern could really have never done. Um, so I think that's very exciting. And I wanted to write about that in the book. And so the last chapter is really a, a, a bunch of ideas that are some data driven, some not. Um, but how can we use analytics at the league level to sort of create the game that we all want to see the most? Yeah. Um, it, it, so let's say none of the, those changes happen and we continue down the, this road um, trailblazed by by the Rockets, essentially. They are the, the go-to analytics team, super efficient. Then the league will effectively become, I, I guess, a, a, a mutation of the current state of the Rockets. What what does the future hold for the NBA in your opinion then? Obviously, um, you, you, it's difficult to say, but I would think there would be a plateau of sorts and then where would the league go next? Yeah, I don't see a plateau coming. I mean, the Rockets have shot, they were the first team in NBA history to shoot over half of their shots from three-point range last year, and they did it again this year. And they're a top offense every time they do it. Um, to me, and they don't have any particularly, uh, I shouldn't say that, they have, they have some very, very good shooters, but it's not like they have Durant, Clay Thompson, and Steph Curry out there. Um so I don't see a plateau. If anything, I think the Rockets have proven that um, you can hack offensive efficiency with shot selection and tactics. Um, and and, and, and they've, they've leaned into these trends and they deserve massive amounts of credit. But what I've, what I've also noticed is that, man, not everybody likes to watch the Rockets. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. it, it's not for me to say what's beautiful, but if you listen to my friends and my colleagues around the league, not everybody is enthused. Um, and if it's true that the Rockets are a sort of trailblazing entity, um, a pioneering group, um, then the future isn't that bright for the aesthetic of NBA basketball, at least according to a lot of these people. Um, and so, again, I come back to the idea of what do we want to see? And that's not up to me, man. That's up to the league. That's up to the old gray beards that run the place. Um, the, the oldest, best basketball coaches, young players, some sort of committee. Um, but what do we value in the sport? Uh, is it ball movement? Is it diverse gameplay? Is it the five position groups all being able to thrive? Um, these are things that have come to my mind and I talk about a lot in the book. Um, and if so, how do we steward those things? How do we preserve those things? How do we encourage those things? And what don't we want to see? Landing area fouls is number one, probably. We don't want to see <laughs> these cynical plays uh, that have plagued sport, soccer uh, for, for, for a little bit. We don't want to see the refs become a strategy. Um, so how do we disincentivize those ugly things? I think those are the sort of analytical um, sort of explorations and adjustments that can help us uh, inform and optimize the things we want to see and while, while sort of discouraging things that we don't want to see out there. Yeah, certainly reading the chapter on Harden, uh, the timing couldn't have been more perfect for what's happening in the, in the, or what has happened so far in, in that series. Um, but obviously you mentioned quite a bit that, that effectively there's a zero-sum effect where there's more threes being taken, the mid-range and the post are dying. Uh, you mentioned Al Jefferson quite a lot. Um, 
couple of years ago for NBA London, the Pacers were here playing the Nuggets, I believe. And I, I specifically asked him about the change of the role in the big man and how he had to adapt his game. And his response to me was, was nothing. They adapt to me. And that seemed like a, a really odd approach to take um, from my perspective. And one of the analogies you used in the, in the book is, is how uh, this transition to the, the three-point uh, reliance essentially is like global warming. So to sort of expand on that, if, if the ice caps were post-play, and they're melting quicker than the lumbering polar bears of the post players can adapt. Um, is is it a case of that they they are not able to adapt, or they're just unwilling to evolve? Do Do you think well, that I mean, post play post post play is basketball? I mean, this is the most tried and true form of the game, and it's alarming to me that it's just going away. Uh, and I just wanted to start the conversation mm-hmm. um, because I just what are we walking away from that entire heritage of the game and it's not because of some genius analytical awakening uh, that, 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 that this is happening. Uh, more than anything, it's because of the contact allowances and the sort of geography of contact allowances on the playing surface. And in soccer, maybe you have a similar thing. Um, but in basketball, it's almost ridiculous. You cannot lay a finger on a person shooting a three-point shot, but if somebody dares to take a two-point shot 10 feet from the basket off of one of the blocks, you can put your arm into their back. You can put a hand on their waist. Um, but if you did that to Clay Thompson or James Harden or Steph Curry, you would be charged with a, a very punitive fine, a three-shot foul. Um, and I think that that's pretty ridiculous. They already have the stipend of the extra point out on the perimeter. Do they also need to be babied with these perimeter touch rules? Um, because that's what's killing Al Jefferson. That's what's hurting Carl Anthony Towns. The fact that Carl Anthony Towns has the best post-up numbers in the NBA right now, yet his post number is, is, is less efficient than an average catch-and-shoot three in the league is, is, is troublesome to me, and that has nothing to do with Carl. It has everything to do with the rules um, that, that allow a defender to, to beat up Carl but can't touch P.J. Tucker. Uh, and I just think that's really interesting. And I, I would like the league to sort of explore that um, going forward. Okay, let's take a quick break to talk about our friends at nbastore.eu. As Europe's official NBA online store, is everything you need and want to support your team, from flags to socks to on-court gear. And our listeners get 15% off orders using the code DCPOD15 at checkout. That's DCPOD15. Offer excludes clearance and outlet items. Um, But what are you waiting for? Head to mbastore.eu now and use the code DCPOD15. It couldn't be simpler. And now, back to my conversation with Kirk Goldsbury. I I think one of the the points you made on on the Zach Lowe podcast, the Lowe Post podcast um, last week or earlier this week, was um, that an open dunk from Yanis is worth less than Harden shooting three free throws in terms of analytical points per shot. Um, and I, that just, what an enlightening moment that, that something is, because everyone loves a Yanis dunk, and yet it's not worth as much to a team in terms of, of, of points as, as Harden uh, orchestrating a foul outside of the three-point line. Uh, that, that amazed <laughs> or me. Orchestrating a foul. Yeah, it amazes me. I'm going to write about it tomorrow on ESPN. Uh, and it'll probably be up maybe for, for a lot of your listeners, so go check it out. But yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people realize how punitive the three-point shooting foul is. And 
so the other thing there is the average Steph Curry three-point shot. If you leave Steph Curry wide open, and we know this from the player tracking system, if you leave him wide open, um, he's going to generate 1.6 points on average on wide open threes, okay? Obviously, a Giannis dunk is worth two points, uh, maybe a shade less because he'll miss a few every year. But a foul on James Harden is worth 2.6 points if you send him to the line for three shots. It's the most valuable play for our most valuable player. Think about that. And that is, if you want to talk about values in both sense, like values, what are the league's values? Well, looking at that, they care more about three-point shooters than they do about post players. They care more about three-point shooters than they do about interior players. Um, they are saving their most punitive foul for laying a finger or getting into the landing area of a three-point shooter. Um, and I think that tells you that these guys have been sort of coddled a little bit. Um, and look, I want everybody to be safe. I'm not encouraging a violent sport out on the perimeter. <laughs> However, I think they already have this three-point stipend. Do they really need to have um, all of these other uh, uh, benefits as well in terms of contact allowances? Or Maybe alternatively, we can look at reducing the contact allowances in the post or actually enforcing the ones that are there, because that's really the root cause of the giant margin between post play and three-point shooting in the league. It's not analytical in nature. It's, it's regulatory in nature. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic observation. Um, I appreciate your very uh, push for time. So one, one final question. Um, Despite all the NBA coverage, obviously, of, of, that we can access 24-7 at our fingertips, um, I still think we're only getting the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the inner workings of, of, of the NBA. Uh, in your role as strategic, well, Vice President of Strategic Research for the San Antonio Spurs, obviously you've had exposure to inside of the league, and I appreciate you won't be able to share everything, or you know, may not be able to share anything, to be fair. But it's, you know... How much is, is there that goes on beyond what it gets out into the public? Because obviously all the presses are, are pre-rehearsed and, and essentially scripted. Um, what sort of granular detail does does this go into? Way too much detail, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> I, I say that, I don't mean to be glib, but it's like the, the analytical challenge like 10 or 15 years ago was like, hey, man, this would be cool. Like with the shot charts, this would be a really cool thing if we could only get the data. Uh, and yeah. there's been a paradigm shift, and it's definitely true on the team side, and it's increasingly true on on the public side as well. It went from "Hey man, how do we get this data?" to "Hey man, what are we going to do with all this data?" And it became a challenge of data creation and data measurement. Now it's a, a challenge of curation, and how do we curate the the needles from these immense haystacks uh, of data? Like, what are the tidbits in the in the processes we need to prioritize? Um, and, and how in a sea of artifacts and a sea of information, how do we extract and communicate the most important ones? Um, because between all the player tracking stuff, the sports science stuff, all the other vendors, uh, and the game of soccer is experiencing this too. And, uh, it's not that unique to, to basketball, but it certainly has been a paradigm shift. We went, like I said, from a world where there wasn't enough data to a world where there's way too much data. And so now the best analysts are the ones that can sort of curate the right findings from these immense, immense seas uh, of data. Perfect. I won't take up any more of your time, but best of luck with the book. Brilliant. Find a way for me much. to come out there, dude. Find a oh. way, find a rich person in England who wants me to come give a talk. I love it. 
So thank you very much to Kirk for taking time out of his busy schedule to join us. Sprawlball, a visual tour of the new era of the NBA, available on Amazon. Um, go and check it out. If you haven't already got a copy, you probably need one. It's fantastic. It's really well written. Uh, my favourite line in it so far when describing Daryl Morey is uh, that he's a stud between the spreadsheets. Um, if you get it, get in touch with us and let us know what you think of it. Uh, we are at Double Clutch UK on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. The website is www.doubleclutch.uk and if you've got any questions or anything, make sure you reach out to us, admin at doubleclutch.uk. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with another episode soon. Double Clutch.